you got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Genesis chapter 33. Uh, quick up, update on my knee for those inquiring minds. Um, if anybody has a knife and would like to go ahead and cut stuff, it would save me a few thousand dollars. Uh, but I am going to get surgery at the end of the month, so I appreciate your prayers for that. Um, I had a very loving and thoughtful deacon who brought a stool up here for me to sit on during the the sermon, uh, but I told him if, if I have to sit down while I preach, I'm just going to stay at home. So we're not going to do that this morning. Um, Genesis chapter 33, this chapter is about reconciliation. And if there's going to be reconciliation, we need to first see the need for reconciliation. There needs to be an opportunity for reconciliation. There needs to be an offense of some kind. So Maybe you stabbed your, your, your friend in the back, or your friend stabbed you in the back, or you both stabbed each other in the back, or a family member said something hurtful to you or about you, or as in the case with Jacob and Esau, one twin brother dresses up like the other and deceives their father into giving them the blessing of the firstborn son instead of the one that truly was born first. And it leaves a deep wound. There's an offense that leaves a deep and abiding wound in the relationship. And there is opportunity for reconciliation. And so as we listen to this story today and we see how reconciliation happens in this story between Esau and Jacob, we remember the wounds in our own relational circles. Maybe it was we who have been wounded or maybe it was we who did the wounding. It's probably not either or, it's probably both and, but for whatever reason, there is a wound there, and that wound needs to be healed. It's an opportunity for reconciliation. And so think about those relationships this morning as we go through this story. But also, as we think about the need for reconciliation, we, of course, should also recall our great need to be reconciled to God. For our sin has caused a deep wound in our relationship with the Father, a wound that we cannot heal no matter how hard we try, a wound that can only be healed by God himself, a wound that, in fact, he has healed through the wounding of his Son, Jesus Christ at Calvary. So let me set up the scene for chapter 33 briefly. In chapter 32, Jacob is preparing to meet his twin brother Esau. He's been gone for 20 years, and he remembers how he had wronged his brother before he left Canaan. He remembered what he had done to deceive him and to steal his birthright and his blessing from him, from the father, from his father. And he knows that Esau had sworn revenge on him and said that, that after their father Isaac dies, after they've mourned the passing of the father, he's going to kill his brother. And so 20 years has passed and now Jacob stands on the banks of the Jabbok ready to cross over. And in thirty-two, chapter 32, he sends these messengers to, to find out about Esau and they come back, of course, and they say, he's coming. And he's not coming alone. He's coming with 400 men. And these are not shepherds. Esau was a hunter, remember? These are hunters, 400 of them, and Esau. And they're coming. They're coming to meet him. And so 
Uh, Jacob does three things in chapter 32, and we're going to return to this later. He, first of all, he prays. He prays for deliverance. Lord, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. Secondly, he splits up his family and all of his possessions into two groups, kind of an insurance policy against Esau destroying all of them. He would destroy one and perhaps the other would be spared. And then thirdly, the third thing he does besides praying and splitting up all that he has is that Jacob then sends a gift to Esau through the servants. And this is no ordinary gift. This is a huge gift. 550 animals, sheep, goats, camels, donkeys, whatever. 550 of them as a, as a bribe, really, to appease his brother's anger. Perhaps my brother will accept this gift and he will forgive me. And he will not be angry with me anymore. So then, as we saw last week, after Jacob has done all his work, after he's done all he can to prepare for meeting back up with Esau, then the Lord steps in and does his work. Then the Lord does what only the Lord can do, and he changes Jacob's heart. And he does that by wrestling with him. He wrestles with him for an entire night. And at one point, the Lord touches Jacob's hip and throws it out of socket. In an instant, he's got a permanent disability. But Jacob holds on until the Lord blesses him, and the Lord does bless him. He blesses him with strength and courage to be able to face his brother as he does in this chapter. The end result of that wrestling from chapter 32, those last few verses, is that Jacob is now a broken man. He's literally broken physically, but he's figuratively broken of his will and his ego and his pride and any sense of self-reliance so that he might glorify God by God showing his power in Jacob's weakness now. So now we're finally at chapter 33. Now we're ready for the reunion of these two brothers. It's all been building up to this point. The tension has been rising in the Jacob and Esau story from 20 years prior. It all comes to this one point. And so now let us listen to this story as God's breathed out words in Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise with her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. 
Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail. The nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven too hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege and the honor that it is to hold this book into our hands and know that You have ordained that it would be preserved throughout the ages so that we know that what we hold in our hands to be your very breath. And so in faith, we thank you for it. We ask in Jesus' name that you would speak to us from it. Do what you promised to do, and that is to cause spiritual fruit to come simply from your word going forth. We ask, Father, that that you would cause reconciliation to happen as a result of what we see in this book. Reconciliation between parent and child, between brother and sister, between friends. Father, we ask that there would be reconciliation between you and man this morning. By your divine spirit, you might walk someone across the line of faith and transform someone from an enemy of yours into a child of yours. Reconcile them to you by your grace through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do that as we attend to this reading of your word about the power of reconciliation that you provide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I don't have a PowerPoint for you. It's okay. Uh, we preach for, for generations without PowerPoint. And the reason there's no PowerPoint is because there's no outline, per se. Uh, this story is just one continuous story. And the dialogue here is just an ongoing, continuous dialogue. And it really doesn't lend itself to be divided up into neat little sections. And so this morning, I just want us to walk through the story together and seek to glean from it insights that will encourage us in pursuing reconciliation, both with man and with God. So Moses begins this narrative by drawing us into the story. He uses in verse 1 three words that refer to looking. Listen to how he puts it in verse 1. He says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold. Three different words. What is Moses doing here? He wants us to see this with our mind's eye. 
He wants to draw the reader into the story and be a part of the story and feel the tension rise at this point. So Jacob looks up his eyes, and as his eyes meet the horizon, what does he see? He sees Esau coming with 400 men. Now that must have been an amazing sight. Just just consider that. He looks up on the horizon, there's dust billowing, and, and 400 men, again, hunters, not shepherds, hunters, armed, horse on horseback or camelback, whatever they were riding, coming in the distance and coming to meet Esau. It must have been an awesome sight. So here it is, the long-awaited, much-anticipated meeting of these two brothers. After 20 years, a wound has persisted. Conflict has, has remained. And now 20 years later, this is it. Now they're coming together. So what does Jacob do? Verse 1 goes on to tell us that he, he lines up his family, mother with child. Apparently, he now has abandoned his previous plan of dividing into two groups Now that plan is out the window. Now he takes a defensive posture and he lines up mother with child. And by the way, he again is showing favoritism in his family. As he lines up the two servants first with their children, they're out in front. Why? Because they're they're more expendable to Jacob. And then there's Leah with her children. And then we're told, last of all, there is Rachel and Her only son, at this point at least, Joseph, indicating that Rachel is still his most loved of these women and that Joseph is his most loved son. Shows favoritism here, something that's plagued Jacob's family since day one. And by the way, the indication of of Joseph being the most loved, part of that indication is because he's the only son that's, that's identified here by name. But this is a foreshadowing of what's to come. As Joseph is kind of set apart, as as it appears as though he's the favorite, this is a foreshadowing of the story of the life of Joseph, which is just on the cusp of the horizon for us in just a few chapters. But Jacob lines up his family, and then we're told in verse 3 that he himself went on before him, before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So here Jacob takes the lead. He gets out in front. Contrast that with chapter 32 as he sends his wife and his children and his flocks on over the Jabbok ahead of him. With him being behind, now he's showing spiritual leadership in the home. He's taking the lead. He's going out front. And what does he do? He bows to the ground seven times. Seven is is symbolic of perfection and completeness. So this is complete humility here. Complete humility. So just imagine that scene. Here's Jacob, and by the way, we haven't talked a whole lot about Jacob's age at this point, but when you do the math and you, and you see in the next few chapters as how old jo- Joseph is when he goes down to Egypt, and then you go back and you find out how old Jacob was when he had Joseph, you do that math, at this point, Jacob is about 90 to 100 years old. And he's approaching his brother, walking by his family. And by the way, he's still got that broken hip, right? The hip is out of socket. And so he's approaching his brother. And every few steps, he gets down and he bows to the ground to his brother. That that, that word bowing has the connotation of falling prostrate. So this is bowing to the ground. This is not just 
you know, I'm, I'm bowing like this. You're, he's going to the ground. And so this old man with a broken hip somehow contorts himself to bow himself to the ground before his brother. Not once, not twice, not three times, but seven times. The approach of Jacob to his brother here is marked by deep humility. There's the bowing seven times to the ground. There's the fact that he refers to Esau throughout this encounter as my Lord. And he refers to himself as your servant. Now on one hand, some look at this and see that Jacob's doing something wrong here. They, 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 They see in Jacob that he's going overboard here. And he's abandoning his role as first in the family, as as taking priority in the family. That, that, That Jacob is somehow abandoning his role as the child of promise. After all, God had prophesied to their mother, Rebecca, when she was still pregnant with the twins. God had said to her, the older, Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. And so by God's covenant promise, it should be Esau who serves Jacob, not the other way around. Likewise, their father Isaac, later when Jacob deceives Isaac into thinking that he's Esau, and he gets the blessing of the firstborn son, when he's doing that, Isaac says to Jacob, let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. He says to Jacob, be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons, that's your brothers, bow down to you. But instead, Jacob here is bowing down to Esau. So this has led some commentators, some Bible scholars, to conclude that Jacob is doing something wrong here. He's going overboard. He's he's abandoning his rightful place as first in the family. He's abandoning his God-ordained role as the child of promise. But I don't think that's what's happening here in this passage. I think the way Moses writes this, he clearly wants us to see that Jacob's humility is genuine here. He's not putting on a show. He's he's not blowing smoke here. This is genuine. Remember, God has broken him. And he's approaching his brother now in genuine humility. Genuine humility that I believe is marked by genuine repentance as well. Both of which, by the way, are necessary if reconciliation is going to happen. If you're going to reconcile with someone who stabbed you in in the back, there needs to be both genuine humility and genuine repentance. Sometimes it's hard to discern genuine repentance, isn't it? As opposed to worldly sorrow, as the Apostle Paul differentiates them in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Genuine repentance accepts the consequences while worldly sorrow seeks to avoid the consequences at all costs. Genuine repentance, in part, is evidenced by genuine humility, while worldly sorrow is evidenced by false humility. And so what I believe we see here in Jacob is genuine humility. And so what does Esau do? What does Esau do? Beautiful, beautiful picture In verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Do you hear the emotion in that? 
Remember, Moses is using words that draws us as the reader to envision this, to, to look at this. Do you see that? Moses uses five verbs there in rapid succession describing how Esau approaches him. First of all, he ran, which, by the way, was something that was culturally taboo for an old man to do in that setting. But Esau sets aside the shame of that, and he girds up his loins, and he runs. He runs towards his estranged brother, and he embraced him. He threw his arms around him, and he hugged him. By the way, as I was reading through this passage this week, one of the things that I was reminded of is the power of a warm embrace. You know, something that we've perhaps forgotten about a lot over the last few months. The power of a warm embrace from a brother or sister in Christ. Perhaps we've taken that for granted prior to all this stuff happening. I was reminded of that this week, the ability to embrace one another. But each Esau didn't just embrace Jacob. This is, wasn't your, your normal everyday side hug. He fell into him. It says that he fell on his neck. Literally, he collapsed into his brother's arms. And then he kissed him. And then they both wept. It's a beautiful picture of reconciliation being lived out. Pastor Eric Raymond rightly sees a similarity here between Esau's actions in this passage and another man, another older man in Scripture who did likewise. Can you think of who that might be? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't a real man. It was a fictional character in a story, a parable, if you will. As Jesus told the parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, and I, I just have to wonder if perhaps Jesus was thinking of the example of Esau when he taught about the prodigal father or the, the father of the prodigal son. And he said in Luke 15 that while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In a similar manner, this embrace here between Esau and Jacob is one of forgiveness and reconciliation that erased years of conflict and wounds. Quite a scene, very unexpected, a surprising turn of events here. This is not what we were expecting. It's certainly not what Jacob was expecting. We were expecting it because we know the story. We've read the story before, but Jacob wasn't. This is a surprising reconciliation for him just as God has been working on Jacob's heart to prepare him for this meeting apparently now we learn that God has also been working on Esau's heart as well so now it's Esau's turn to lift up his eyes in verse 5 his head is buried again in his brother's arms and he he lifts up his eyes from his brother's shoulders and what does he behold he sees family family Jacob's family. He didn't even know he had a family. He didn't know he had been married, much less this, this cadre of children. And so he asks in verse 5, he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children. He said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. 
Again, the pride in Jacob is gone. It's gone. It's been replaced by a recognition of God's kindness and grace to him. These are those whom God has graciously given your servant. And so then Jacob has each one of them, mother with their children, come and bow before Esau and introduce themselves. And what an incredible reconciliation. This wasn't just reconciliation between Esau and Jacob. This is reconciliation between Esau and Jacob's entire family. So then Esau continues the conversation in verse 8. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? So he's referring here to the gift that Jacob had sent to Esau, the 550 animals that he sent as as a bribe, really, to appease his brother's anger. So what do you mean by this? What what, what did you mean by all this company that I met? It turns out there was no anger to appease in Esau, right? Jacob answers him and he says, they are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. That was the purpose of them, to find favor. The word for favor there is the same word that we find later in another form Translated graciously. It's the word for grace. He was trying to find grace in his brother. He was trying to purchase grace. He was trying to buy forgiveness from his brother. It turns out it doesn't work that way. Esau says in verse 9, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Now we see that and we think, man, what a great deal for Jacob, right? What a great deal for Jacob. I mean, he's really coming out on the positive here. Not only is his brother not angry with him anymore, not only has he escaped his brother's vengeance, but now the gift that he gave away that was quite significant, 550 animals, now he gets to keep that as well. Like killing two birds with one stone, right? But Jacob doesn't see it that way. You see, he's been wrestled into submission by Yahweh. He's a broken man who now knows that God is faithful and God is trustworthy and God will keep his promises and that his job, Jacob's job, is just to trust him and to rely on him and not himself. And so being overwhelmed by the grace and and, and mercy from Esau, both in him forgiving him before he even saw him, And now in offering to give back to him this gift, in in beholding that grace and mercy from his brother Esau, Jacob sees in his brother a reflection of the grace and mercy that he has encountered with God. So listen to what he says in verse 10. Jacob said, no, 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 please. If I have found favor, again, that word grace, if I found grace in your sight, then accept my present from your hand, from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God And you have accepted me. So please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Jacob says, when I see you, I see the face of God. He's not saying that you look like God physically. He's not saying you resemble the angel of the Lord that I wrestled the night before. Instead of what he's saying is that you have similar actions there's a similarity in their actions Esau when I see grace and mercy in you I see a reflection of the grace and mercy that I've encountered in God and so take this gift not as a bribe now not as an attempt to try to 
by grace or by forgiveness or appease your anger, but as a way of thanking you, as a way of thanking you, as an offering of thanks for the grace that you've shown to me, as a token of our newfound reconciliation. Parenthetically, in verse 11, when Jacob says, uh, please accept my blessing, take my blessing, we should, see, we should hear in that word overtones of the blessing that Jacob stole from Esau 20 years earlier when he deceived his father and he took the blessing of the firstborn son. Now Jacob wants to return his blessing, in a sense, back to Esau. This, to me, is another indication that this is genuine humility and genuine repentance because what we see in Jacob is a willingness to accept responsibilities and own us, own what he did, and pay it all back. I, I, I don't even need it. Take it all back. Worldly sorrow looks to make excuses and avoid responsibility, but genuine repentance makes no excuses makes no excuses and, and, and admits that he's wrong and deserves to pay all the consequences and is willing to accept full responsibility for his actions. And that's what we see in Jacob in this story. So now the reconciliation is complete. And the conversation then in verse 12 takes a turn and they begin talking about their parting Esau twice makes offers of help to Jacob, and both times Jacob politely refuses the help. It's interesting. The first offer is, is basically, let's travel together now that we've been reconciled. Let's travel together. Look at verses 12 through 14. Esau said, let's journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So that's the first offer of help. Let's just travel together now. And, and, and Jacob says, and this is a legitimate excuse on his part, he's got young children with him, whereas Esau doesn't. He's just got a bunch of hunters with him. Hunters travel differently than shepherds. So he says, I've got these young flocks, uh, these young children. I'm not going to be able to go as fast. You just go on ahead. You just go on ahead. The second offer of help is in verse 15. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me, some of the hunters. But Jacob says, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. In other words, don't trouble yourself, Esau. We'll be fine. The grace that you've shown to me is more than enough. It's more than enough. Now as we read through this, we should rightly discern that Jacob here is politely and perhaps very diplomatically refusing this service and communicating to his brother that we live different lives. And just because there's reconciliation between us, we're not going to be roomies from this point on. The life that Esau has chosen is dramatically different than the life that God and the path that God has Jacob and his family on. We recall the stories of how Esau took 
wives from the Canaanites as his wives. We recall how Esau um, violated what the father had told him to take wives from his homeland. So he took Canaanite wives instead of uh, wives from there. Um, Esau uh, goes into, uh, uh, he settled outside of the promised land. He ends up in the land of Edom, in the hill country of Edom. Esau becomes the father of the Edomites, who will become enemies of Israel. And thus the prophecy given to Rebekah, the, the, the mother, when she was pregnant with the children, uh, comes true. The Edomites end up serving the Israelites as subjects, as servants, if you will. These Edomites, Esau among them, are outside of God's covenant promises. They are not part of God's family. They're living a different life. And so Jacob knows there's not going to be communal living between us from this point on. And so we're told in verse 16, Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Sukkoth or booths. So Esau goes to Seir in the south in the hill country of Edom. And Jacob says that he'll follow, but more slowly because of the children and the herds and flocks that are behind him. And so Esau sets off and he expects that Jacob will be following behind him. But Jacob doesn't go to Seir. He goes to Sukkoth. And then eventually to Shechem, to the land of Canaan. So what's going on here? Is Jacob misleading his brother again? Is he yet again showing his flesh, showing his natural colors, and deceiving his brother after this emotional reconciliation? Where God clearly brings them together, changes their hearts and brings them. Is he deceiving his brother again? Some commentators think so, but I don't. I don't think that's what's happening here. In Genesis chapter 36, we'll hear about how Esau went and settled in the hill country. Chapter 36 is all about um, Esau's genealogy and what happened to him and his prodigy, progeny. Um, and, it, and it tells us in chapter 36 that he goes into the hill country of Edom because there was not room for both he and Jacob to shepherd their flocks in the same land. So kind of like Abraham and Lot back in chapter 13. They, they intentionally decide to separate and go their different ways. And so Genesis 36, to me, seems to indicate that perhaps they're both, they set out heading to Seir, but along the way, they both recognize that they can't both be in the same land. These are huge groups of people with huge flocks and herds. <clears throat> and so along the way, <clears throat> they decide there wasn't room enough for both of them. And so they make an intentional decision to part ways amicably. And, and that it was an amicable parting is evidenced by the fact that two chapters later, as we'll see in chapter 35, when their father Isaac dies, we're told that both Jacob and Esau come together to bury their father. And there's no hint of conflict in them whatsoever. So I don't believe that Jacob is misleading Esau here in these verses. And then Jacob returns to Canaan in verse 18. And this really sets up the story, uh, the tragic story of uh, what happens to Jacob's family as he is encamped there at Shechem uh, with his family. 
And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he, has pitched, he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. So now the journey is complete. Jacob is back home. He's back in the promised land. Now he owns a piece of Canaan. And the story will continue next week um, with the tragic story of their daughter, Dinah. The primary lesson from chapter 33 is that when God's people need reconciliation, they should rely on God. That's the lesson that Jacob learned. That's the lesson that the Israelites would, would have learned. And that's the lesson that we should learn. Jacob and Esau need to be reconciled. There was a deep wound between them, a wound that had lasted for years and years and years. And so on the day before their reunion, as we talked about before, on the day before they reunite, Jacob does those three things. He prays, he asks for deliverance from the Lord. He divides his family and his possessions into two groups. And he sends a bribe ahead to appease his brother's anger. So how did all that work out for him? Well, as it turns out, the gift was useless. The bribe was pointless. It was a waste of time and energy. Why? Because the Lord had already changed his heart. The bribe did nothing to change his heart. He even asked him, what's up with all these things that I met along the way? That gift did nothing to change Esau's heart. Nothing whatsoever. It was, it was pointless. It was a waste of time and energy and resources because God had already changed Esau's heart. What about the exercise of dividing the family into two groups? Was that useful? Did that do anything to, to heal the wound between Jacob and Esau? No. In fact, we see here that apparently he abandons that plan. Once they get across the Jabbok, he's like, they're all together. And as Esau is approaching, he lines up all of his wives and children in a line. And so he abandoned it. That grand scheme of dividing his family and possessions, that, that great plan that he had put together was a waste of time and energy. It did, it did absolutely nothing to help bring Jacob and Esau together. But you know what it did? Jacob's prayer. Jacob's prayer. When we were in chapter 32 and we looked at Jacob's prayer there, we noted that there were some distinct elements to his prayer that were exemplary for us. First of all, he demonstrated sincere humility in his prayer. He humbled himself before the Lord. Second of all, he, he brought his petition before the Lord. Lord, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. And third, he, he pled God's promises back to himself, that this is who you are, God, and I believe who you are. In fact, listen to the if you've got your finger there, look at chapter 32, verses 9 through 12. Follow along as I read Jacob's prayer. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do your good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. We see the humility here. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps or two groups. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, 
which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he pleads the promise that God had given to him at Bethel before any of this started. He says, this is who you are, God, and I believe who you are, and I'm standing on your promises, and I'm pleading with you. Lord, deliver me from the hand of my brother. And God answers that prayer. And how does he answer that prayer? How does God deliver him from the hand of his brother Esau? By wrestling Jacob into submission. That's how he answers the prayer. And in so doing, rooting out from Jacob any remaining sense of reliance on self. Now he can't rely on self. Now God in his kindness has brought Jacob to the end of himself. He is a broken man. Now he must rely on God. And so Jacob emerges from chapter 32. He emerges from that wrestling. Humbled, broken, limping, but trusting in God. Trusting in God like he never has before. Because he's got nothing else. That's part of why I see Jacob's humility here in chapter 33 as genuine and not over the top. Not blowing smoke. Not a show. Because he has been humbled by the Lord in chapter 32. And now we see genuine humility motivated by genuine repentance to what he has done in his relationship with Esau. And when he sees the grace and mercy that his brother extends to him, he sees the face of God and he recognizes that. He's like, I've seen that grace and mercy before in Yahweh. He's shown it to me. I now see it in my brother. And this all happened. This all happened because of Jacob's prayer in chapter 32. You see, church, God ordains the end, what will happen, but he also ordains the means, how it will happen, and what he will use as a trigger to enact his perfect plan. And the means that God uses to enact his perfect plan is the prayers of his people. And so in saying that this happened because of Jacob's prayer, I'm not robbing God of the credit. Instead, I'm giving him more credit because I believe that it is God who brought Jacob to his knees in chapter 32 to beg God for mercy and to beg God to deliver him. And then God made it happen. You might hear someone say, well, wait, God is sovereign. I don't need to pray because God's going to do what God's going to do. But friend, that does not, that is not consistent with the testimony of Scripture. God ordains the end, but he also ordains the means. And the means that he uses is the prayers of his people. Jacob prays. He pleads the promises. God, I believe you when you said this, when you said that you were going to take care of me. You said you were going to bring me back to this land. You said that my, my offspring will be like the sands of the seashore that cannot be counted. I believe you in those promises. And I'm counting on you to act according to those promises. And then he pled his petition. Lord, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. And God does just that. He works in Jacob's life. To bring him to a place of complete and total surrender and dependence on him. A place of genuine humility. And in that humility, he approaches, he humbly approaches his brother Esau, as we've seen. And when he does, he realizes that God has not only worked on him, but God has worked on his brother. God's done a work in his life and his heart as well, bringing him to a place of preparing him for this reunion as well. And that was an answer to prayer. So when God's people need reconciliation, we should rely on God. 
We should pray to God for reconciliation and leave God, leave room for God to change hearts, ours and theirs, and then watch God do what only God can do. So, with whom do you need to reconcile? What wounds might linger in your past? Maybe you were the one who was wounded. Maybe you were the one who, was, who did the wounding. But there's an opportunity, a need for reconciliation. Let me encourage you to first pray. Ask the Lord to work on your heart. Ask the Lord to work on their heart. And pave the way for reconciliation. And that's just leave room for God to work. I would be remiss if I didn't offer a clarifying comment at this point. I am not telling you that you should put yourself back into an unsafe situation. I'm not telling you that if the wound in your life is somehow tangible and physical, that you should put yourself back into an unsafe situation. If that's the case case for you, let me encourage you to talk to people in your base group, talk to me, talk to your shepherding elder, and let them provide counsel to you in that unique situation. What I'm talking about here are all those other wounds that result in distance in our relationships. Mean-spirited words, harsh words, lies, character assassination, something stolen from you, whatever. Whatever the case may be, pray, be willing to change, and then watch God work. Now, as we said at the very beginning, anytime we talk about our need for reconciliation on the horizontal plane, we need to recognize and be reminded of our need for reconciliation on a vertical plane as well. We're reminded that though we had wounded the Father with our sin and rebellion, and that that had resulted in our just punishment, that, that, that we deserved a just punishment, which is an eternity spent in a real place away from God that the Bible calls hell. That though that was the awful bad news that was the reality for us, he has provided good news for us as well. That he made a way for sinners like us to be reconciled back to him. And that way was through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus approached us, the estranged brother. He came to us. He didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to us. He initiated the reconciliation. And he didn't come with 400 men. He came alone. And he went to the cross alone to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay so that those who come to him in faith and repentance, trusting in Christ as their only hope to be rescued from what they deserve, those who turn from sin and self-rule and turn to Christ and his rule over their life might be forgiven and reconciled back to God. And the beauty is that those who have been thus reconciled back to God through Jesus Christ have then been given the ministry of reconciliation to share that good news, to send that gospel message to those within our spheres of influence and to the ends of the earth. That's our great commission to share those that good news with others who so desperately need to hear it but maybe that's you this morning maybe you're the one who just desperately needs to hear that good news you need to be reconciled to god your sin and your rebellion is offensive to a holy god And has made you an enemy 
with the Father. But Jesus Christ can reconcile you back to the Father. So will you turn from your sin and your self-rule and turn to Christ in faith, trusting that what he did on the cross as full and sufficient payment for your rebellion to wipe away those offenses and to erase that wound that can only be healed by him? Or, or, will you keep trusting in your own efforts to try to find favor in his eyes? Will you keep trusting in your, in your bribe of trying to live a good enough life to try to earn that grace, to try to heal that wound that can only be healed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I beg of you, if that's you, I beg of you to be reconciled to God through Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for this story of reconciliation. And as we see these imperfect people walk this out, we are reminded, Lord, that if we are to be reconciled with those with whom there is a wound in our life, we are dependent on you. We can't manipulate the situation. We can't earn their forgiveness, and neither can they earn ours. You need to work on hearts. And so, Father, I pray for every person within the sound of my voice, Lord, that the wounds that are in their life, the conflict that they have, the need for reconciliation, Lord, that they turn it over to you. God, in your kindness and your mercy, would you wrestle them into submission to rely on you alone to do a work in their heart and in the heart of the one with whom they have that wound. But Lord, we are so grateful when we read a story like this, we're reminded of how you have, by your divine grace, you have reconciled us back to you. And so we thank you, Father. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus. And we are blown away by that grace and the love that motivated it to purchase us and transform us from sinners into saints, from enemies into children. From those who are worshiping self to those who now have the opportunity and privilege to worship you. And so in that spirit, Father, we stand now. We stand together out of gratefulness for this grace. We celebrate you. and We praise you. And we thank you that we stand before you reconciled not because of our ability to bribe you into submission, but because you have wrestled us into submission and you have saved us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.